So, still here. 24 hours in. And here we are. We're still, we're still here. Always feels like a, a minor miracle. But also a, a real um, opportunity for appreciation. Yeah. It's, not, um, it's not necessarily easy. First day of retreat. It's a real opportunity for appreciation for yourself, um, for each other, and from, from us to, to you, yeah, for your practice, for your willingness. To, to be here and to be present with both moments of challenge, you know, of some degree of difficulty, and also with moments of, of ease. And I think if we take a, a few moments to reflect on our experience today, probably <coughs> for all of us, there's been both. Not necessarily to the same degree, but there's been both. There's been moments of challenge, and there's been moments of ease and of well-being. And it's really worth just seeing that, you know, just feeling that. Okay, there's been there's been both. And this is a microcosmos or a, a lab of the human experience. You know, what, what you've seen over the last 24 hours, what you've experienced, <coughs> this is the human experience. Moments of challenge, of difficulty, and moments of ease in varying degrees, and the movement between the two. And a question may, may arise if we acknowledge, if we accept that this is the experience, that as human beings, our experience changes. Yeah. That we don't have absolute control. We're not able to program life so that we only get the ease and the well-being. It fluctuates, it, ch- it changes. And so a question may arise of um, what does that mean for us? You know, what does that mean if experience changes, if it is conditioned in this way? What kind of happiness is possible for us? You know, which is at least part of the reason why we're here. Because we want to understand more about happiness, about well-being, about this this human experience. And can we cultivate well-being? Can we cultivate a freedom that is um, less reliant on things going our way and being able to control things? to be a certain way. Is that possible to cultivate 
a happiness, a contentment, a well-being that is less reliant on things going our way. So a few days ago we had a great teaching, a great practice session around this. We were um, taking the two young daughters, uh, friends of ours, to meet their parents um, on a train journey that took just over two hours. And they're, I think, five and a half and eight years old. So a great opportunity for practice with two wonderful teachers on the journey. And it was so, I mean, I find children really amazing to, to be with and to experience life with. Um, as I said, real teachers. It was really interesting, the movement between complete, being completely contented and um, absorbed in what they were doing, you know, reading a book or sticking things or playing or whatever, to the, are we nearly there yet? When are we going to get there? Oh, another half an hour, no. And just seeing how that moves, how that changes. And because we're quite close, I, I actually found myself, especially with the older one who's eight and who's a bit more of a, she struggles a little bit more with the ups, ups and downs of life, to really kind of say to her, well, just check for yourself. Does it make things better? <laughs> if you kind of really get into this, oh, when will we get there? You know, and, and, and I think quite a reasonable way. I wasn't at all annoyed, actually. <laughs> I was just saying to you, you know, does, it, does it make it better? And what happens if you just kind of sit back in your seat and breathe? At some point she said to me, I don't want to breathe. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> you know, and read your book or, you know, talk to your sister. What, like, what happens? Just to explore that experience. And sometimes, you know, and, and again, when we watch other people or kids, this is a great teaching, it seems like it's a binary choice that we have between, you know, resisting the experience, oh, we're not there yet, oh, there's so much longer, yeah, and then distracting, which is the other side, which is, okay, I'll, I'll read my book or I'll, you know, do something to get away from this unpleasantness. And sometimes it, it can feel these are our only two choices, yeah, one or the other. And yet, Dharma teachings and practices suggest that these are not the only two choices that we have. It's not just about resisting experience or distracting ourselves, moving towards something other than what is here. But there's another option, which is a a whole field of exploration. There's the possibility... Um, which we can call the middle way, if we wish. There's the possibility to soften into what is present. To soften into what is arising in experience now, whether that is pleasant or unpleasant, challenging or easeful. We have that possibility, and I'm going to say more about this. And 
and if we reflect on our own experience, you know, we may have had similar experiences here. It's quite likely um, to these two wonderful teachers on the train. Yeah, for example, waiting for the bell to ring. Yeah, in one of those really, really long forty-five minute meditations. I often tell this story, it's only happened to me once, but one time someone actually walked up to the front and checked that I had not fallen asleep. (laughs) Because it just felt like it was so long. It must be way, way, way longer than 45 minutes. And, you know, it's interesting to see the mind can do that. Yeah, because it's all relative and relational. So if experience is unpleasant and if there's a lot of resistance... Yeah. What happens? Yeah. What happens? So if we break it down, you know, there may be discomfort in the body, uh, maybe pain, or there may be some form of restlessness or agitation in the body or the mind, and there will be resistance to that. We don't like that. Yeah. Don't like that. And there'll be resistance. There'll be a pushing away of that experience, of wanting to get rid of it. And usually that resistance goes under our radar. We're not aware of it. We're just aware of the discomfort and then we might be aware of the thoughts. You know, oh, when will this end? And when the bell finally rings, I'll just, and I get out of this meditation hall, you know, I'm just going to be blissful. Yeah, my life will be sorted. I'm exaggerating, of course. But to some degree, that goes on. Right? The sense of when that thing happens, that's where the happiness is. That's where the well-being is for us. But what actually happens if we check in with our experience, with the resistance and with the thinking patterns that come with it, the patterns of reactivity in the body and the mind, um, what actually happens is the resistance grows and with the resistance, the unpleasantness of the experience. It's really interesting. Yeah, really interesting. They all are related. Yeah. Things don't arise independent of other things. Yeah. Conditioned. And so there's a kind of cycle that can grow from the initial um, happening, yeah, which might be maybe a sensation of tension somewhere in the body, yeah, pain somewhere, um, or the length of a train journey, <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah, there's the initial happening, and then there's our relationship to it. Yeah. So we've been speaking in, in this language. This is another way of seeing it, the relationship to it, whether there's resistance or not makes a big difference. Yeah, a big difference. And how we relate affects the experience. Yeah. So the, that initial happening, how long the train journey feels like it is or how long the meditation feels like, that is actually affected by our relationship. Does this make sense to people? Yeah, can you see that? Now this is really, really important to see. So there's always a way of relating to experience at play, which 
participates in shaping the experience. Participates in shaping the experience. And we will be coming back to this over the days and unpacking it more and more and more into the the depth and the details. But I want to at this point come back to to our practice today and to um, particularly moments of challenge in our meditation practice. Often um, what happens when we experience challenging things in meditation is that it feels like this is about me. Yeah. Or there's something wrong with me. And that's why this is happening. Or I can't do this. Or I don't know how to do this. Or I'll never learn how to do this. Yeah. It becomes really about me. And this about me is actually another form of relationship. Yeah. This ownership. Also, I'm not going to go into this too much, but it also affects the intensity of experience. Right? If I have <clears throat> a pain somewhere in the body, there's a pain in the body. If it becomes my pain, <clears throat> do you see that that intensifies the experience? Maybe it's not a great example. It becomes my pain, my body, which is problematic, which is not as great as these other people, and I'll never become a great meditator because I've got the kind of body that has pain during meditation, which means that my mind will never get quiet. It kind of spirals off in that way. So let me tell you a little bit about things that happened to you today. (laughs) Challenges that you experienced. And let's see if, if I if I if I kind of have a sense of what may have happened. So did anyone feel sleepy today? Please raise your hand. Please look around. Okay. Did anyone feel some degree of agitation or restlessness today? Yeah. Okay. Quite a few. Did anyone feel um, a, a kind of a real pull, a real desire for something else than what was present in your experience? So for a body without pain or for a mind without agitation, for example, or for the bell to ring? Yeah, okay, great. Did anyone feel aversion to what was present, not wanting the experience? Yeah, again, yeah. So we can see when we do this, yeah, this is the human experience again. And this is one aspect of the human experience that we see when we stop and when we stay still and we try and do something that sounds really simple, like pause and relax and be with the breath. Yeah, We experience all these aspects of our humanity which are often here. Yeah, They're part of our experience. Yeah, this one spectrum we can see as a spectrum of energy. Yeah, too little energy we get sleepiness, dullness, drowsiness. Yeah, too much energy we get 
um, restlessness, agitation. Yeah, it's a spectrum of energy. And what happens when we see it as a spectrum? We were just Nathan and I were talking about it while we were having supper. A spectrum of energy yeah, is a little bit less personal than you know this problematic body or this problematic experience or this problematic mind. Yeah. We see there's a spectrum. And similarly, there's a spectrum of uh, being triggered strongly, being triggered by our habits of wanting and not wanting. And also really strong human habits. Yeah, being drawn to something, being repelled by something. Wanting to have this, not wanting to have that. Yeah. There's strong habits that get triggered very, very quickly. Almost kind of on automatic pilot almost all the time, just looking for what to um, kind of hook onto. So often we might be having a challenging or an unpleasant experience and we're not even exactly aware what it is. There's just this sense of kind of get me out of here to some degree. And noticing, ah, it's this. There's too little energy or too much energy in the system right now. Just that recognition. Or there's that movement towards something, yeah, or that pushing away of something else. Just the noticing of it, the naming of it, the recognition can do quite a lot if we're talking about relationship to experience. It can reduce resistance can reduce that sense of ownership that this is who I am yeah. so it can do quite a lot with the, resi- with the, with the relationship so in, the, in meditation traditions and particularly in Dharma teachings there's quite a lot of you know um, teachings around these particular spectrums that I've just named and they're called the, the traditional language which I'll just offer so that you can put into context is hindrances, things that get in the way of uh, this process of collecting, gathering and quietening the mind and that unification of mind and body and if we reflect on our experience again we can see how that is, you know, if there's something there and that creates a lot of activity in the system, then we just keep kind of getting sucked into it. And then remember the breath. And then we're sucked into it. Then remember the breath. Keep doing it. It just feels like this this um, tug of war, almost. And they arise for all of us, as we've just seen. Yeah. And sometimes several of them can arise together. <laughs> just to make it even more fun so don't get too kind of um, too caught up in trying to figure out exactly what it is you know Uh, is this kind of too much energy with a dash of aversion and a little bit of desire you know so yeah do if it makes you laugh that's always good but don't kind of just just notice ah these spectrums are here or these hindrances are here whatever uh, word is useful for you. 
So that really helps the, the non-personal and the recognition. And the Buddha had um, a wonderful uh, simile for how when these um, hindrances are present, how they affect the mind. And I just love this, so I can't resist sharing this, this simile. Um, and in the simile, he um, uses the image of a still forest pool for our mind. Yeah, so the mind, undisturbed, <coughs> is like a still forest pool. So the water is very clear because it's very still. And you can see very clearly what is at the bottom. Okay, so that's the mind undisturbed. When there's, when there's desire in the mind, it's as if someone threw a colored dye into the water. Yeah, and that clear water is suffused with a particular color. Yeah, you can choose for yourself which color you'd like desire to be. When there's aversion, it's as if the water is boiling. I love this image. It's as if the water is boiling and bubbling and steaming. And again, we lose the capacity to see what is there, what is in the pool. When our energy is low, is too low, um, it's as if the water is covered by um, by plants and it's very stagnant. Yeah, it doesn't can't breathe, and again, you can't see what is there. And when there's restlessness and agitation, it's as if there's a strong wind blowing across the surface of the water, and again, the waves obscure, hide what is at the bottom. So again, we cannot see, we cannot access that clarity of, of the pool. So I love this image because I, I feel like um, we can really feel what each of these um, particular energies, how it affects the mind and how it colors the mind. Yeah. When there is um, too little energy that affects what we perceive in experience when there's too much energy that affects what we perceive yeah, it becomes like a lens through which we see yeah, it might be how we experience the weather as I said time can be really affected we know that experience <coughs> yeah, so each of these particular um, energies or spectrums, when they're present, they affect, they become the lens through which we relate and we see experience. And they have a huge effect. But that's, that's not the end of possibilities. Right? This teaching is about possibilities. So a few things that um, are interesting to remember and to practice with. The first one is, and I've said it a few times, but I'm going to say it again, is that these um, mind states and ways of, of looking at experience are natural. They're human. They're not personal. Yeah, they arise in the human mind and body. And they are workable. Okay? They're workable. 
when we recognize this is what's present, we can shift our relationship and we can attend to experience. There's something we can do or ways we can relate that can be helpful. And the first aspect of that is really making them known. Because most of the time they're hidden. We're not aware that that is what is happening. So that acknowledgement, ah, imbalance of energy. Wanting something, not wanting something. That's what's arising. And then we can attend (coughs) with our practice. And we touched on some of these ways um, this morning in the questions, I think, in particular. So noticing there's um, too much energy in the system, agitation, opening out the space. We can do it with the body. Sometimes we'll notice the body is a bit contracted, and we open out the space. We invite relaxation. We explore, oh, what is the body awareness? Where does it actually end? Can I get a sense of the whole body? Can I get a sense of the body in contact with the ground? So we're interested in creating more space within our experience. We're not changing or suppressing, but we're bringing our attention to the possibility of more space in which this agitation can move, this excess energy can move. Does this make sense to people? Yeah, if we think of something like a lot of energy trapped in a really small space, yeah, it kind of bangs up against the edges a lot more, actually gets more and more activated. If it has a lot more space, and again, you think of a small child <laughs> with a lot of energy, a lot of space is good. Yeah, can run around. Same with the internal energy. Imbalance, more space, less intensity. Or the other example we were speaking of this morning, um, when the energy is low, yeah, when there's too little energy, when we feel sleepy or dull. Yeah, what what can we do then? We can breathe in a way that feels energizing. We can imagine light coming in with the breath or um, often in the forehead area. So we can continue to practice and we're using these ways of relating to experience to attend to what is there. If there's this movement of desire for something else, we can notice what is right here, what is present right now which is enough. I want, really want lunch. <laughs> I really want the bell to ring. Is there anything right now in my experience which is enough? Like this breath. Yeah. Like the fact that there will be a meal waiting for me three times a day. And you know, we can use our capacity of the mind to notice that. And when there's a version and with all of this, this is helpful, but with aversion, very helpful. Can I relax? Very difficult to feel aversion without tension in the body. Try it yourself.
Can I breathe in a way that creates space again and relaxes some of the tension? These are all ways that we can um, gently play with what is arising in experience. Um, and there's more. Yeah, you can find many, many more. These are just some to touch on. And what's common to all of them is they have the element of recognition, yeah, of recognizing what is present. They have the element of some acceptance and allowing, yeah, which neutralizes that habit of resistance of what we don't want and don't like. Does that make sense so far? I don't want to rush ahead without you. Yes? No? Yeah. The last one. Yeah. So, what's common to all the ways that we can work with um, in, with these spectrums or these hindrances is um, there'll always be an element of recognition, recognizing ah, there's too much energy, there's too little energy, there's a pushing away or being pulled towards, just recognizing the flavor of the experience. And then there'll be an element of allowing or accepting, which is really important to say here. It doesn't mean that we sign a lifetime contract to live with this. It just means that we accept that right now this is present. Yeah. Right now this is here. Yeah. There's pain in the body or discomfort or agitation or a really beautiful, like really compelling fantasy. Yeah, whatever it is, there's something here. And that's affecting my experience. And so we recognize and we allow, and then we bring interest and exploration. Yeah, and that's kind of some of the things I was suggesting. We explore, uh, we get, we, we're interested in the experience and we explore how we can attend to it in a skillful way. So increasing the space, increasing the levels of energy. Yeah. Inclining towards contentment with what is if the mind is pulling us towards something else. Contentment with what is here and available. Yeah. These are ways where we're bringing interest and we're bringing some degree of exploration. And all of this reduce the resistance. Yeah. Reduce the resistance. And when there's less resistance, there's more space and possibility. This is what's really important. Yeah, we're, we're caught up in habits of resistance and reactivity. When we can reduce those, what opens up is possibilities of response. Yeah. More possibilities, not just a habit. So every time we pause and notice yeah, our experience, this is something we're doing. Yeah? We're noticing what is present. Uh, what's here? What am I noticing? That's recognition. And it also flows into allowing. And then when we use relax, we're heightening that allowing, accepting aspect of experience. Yeah, and we can notice the container increases, there's more space, there's less intensity as we do that. When we bring attention to the breath and the body, and we'll be working with that more tomorrow, we can do that um, 
as a way of resourcing ourselves. So the breath or the body awareness can become a resource, you know, a place where we can ground and root and settle as a resource. So we're not just getting caught up in that habitual activity of resistance. And again, we can increase the space in which experience is happening. For most of us, we're such mental beings that our experience is that everything is happening here in the head. And as we um, get more familiar, more connected to the breath and the body awareness, we're increasing the space, increasing the contact areas that we have with experience. We meet experience not just through the thinking, but through the body field. person in charge of recordings at Guy House will not be happy with that sound. It's an opportunity of compassion for them. So we can do all of this as a kind of a way of working with the difficult, with the challenging that arises in experience. And we can also bring in another practice um, or another attitude, which we've already touched on a little today. And this attitude is actually intentionally inclining the mind to what is going well in our experience. Okay? And I'm going to say uh, a bit more about why we want to do this. Sometimes um, when we bring this in, people think it's very not Buddhist because Buddhism is all about suffering. Um, and actually, you know, Dharma teachings are about freedom from suffering. Um, so, yeah, so there's something about um, inclining the mind to the joyful and what is going well, which can be very powerful for us as a practice. And in recent years, um, science, brain science in particular, has come up with a lot of um, information that is really helpful in understanding why these practices are important and also how they work. So has anyone here heard of the negativity bias? Yeah, quite a few people. Unfortunately, you're going to hear about it again. So, an opportunity to to practice patience. So, one major habit of our mind, or tendency of the mind, which is really, really strong, is to both contract around what is unpleasant and to emphasize it. Okay? So, this is a very um, inbuilt tendency of our minds. And it stems, the theory is that it stems from hunter-gatherer times. When we really needed to notice what was a potential danger. Um, And we were also busy looking for food. But the danger is, you know, kind of more imminent. Um, Nathan usually speaks about this, of a period in humanity when um, it was either be, be lunch or find lunch. Find lunch or be lunch. Um, kind of um, dichotomy. So, for example, um, angry facial expressions of other humans are processed in our brains much faster 
than happy or neutral facial expressions. Okay, so this is one example of the negativity bias. We're kind of primed to notice that. And unpleasant sensations or mind states pull our attention or experiences pull our attention much more than positive ones. So the ratio, this is not from the Buddha, this is from modern research. Um, the ratio is one to seven. So for us to feel like we've had a balanced meditation between pleasant and unpleasant experiences, there would need to be seven times more <laughs> pleasant experiences. It's pretty impressive, isn't it? <laughs> it's quite a bias that our mind has. Yeah, seven times more pleasant or neutral to balance out the, the unpleasant. Yeah. The good news is that the mind the mind isn't fixed. Yeah, it's pliable, it's flexible. And when we practice meditation, we increase the pliability and the flexibility. This is one of the good reasons to practice meditation. We increase the flexibility and the pliability. And so when we intentionally incline the mind to what is okay, yeah, or what is joyful, or what is pleasant, we're actually both rewiring our brain over time to be more balanced and changing our experience in the immediacy. We're doing both. We're making change immediately and over time. So we're opening the attention and we're training the mind to notice what is going well. And this redresses the balance. And similarly, when we um, intentionally open to notice what is okay, what is neutral, yeah, not particularly great, not particularly terrible, yeah, we're also redressing this imbalance that, that we have in our experience. So it's really important with us to... Um, see that this isn't about ignoring or suppressing or erasing the difficult or the challenging or the unpleasant in our lives. It's just about holding it in the wider context of what is there. Yeah. So a lot of things are happening in every moment. And our tendency will be to focus on the unpleasant. So when we intentionally look for what's okay or tune in to a pleasant aspect of the breathing to what is good enough as it is, or to noticing when joy arises and allowing ourselves to dwell in it, yeah, we're addressing the balance. We're not suppressing anything, just opening up the vista, opening up the perspective. So different ways that we can do this. There's different ways that we can do this. I just want to bring a few in. One is to open to, to gratitude, yeah, intentionally. So to notice what brings a sense of gratitude or to um, intentionally open can be at the beginning of meditation. It's a great primer for meditation practice. So you can begin every meditation session with just noticing, is there anything I'm grateful for in my experience right now? Yeah. And it can be really simple things. 
this breath, that meal, yeah, being at Gaia House, the birds, you know, it doesn't matter, this person sitting next to me. Yeah. We just open to that and not um, not try too hard. Yeah. With practice things will arise. Yeah. Will arise naturally. So we can open to gratitude. And we can open to generosity. Yeah. We can open to appreciation. These are all <coughs> ways that we incline the mind towards the the unworldly joys, the unselfish, unself-centered joys of the world. So last night we had a, a little reflection on generosity. Yeah, I don't know if anyone remembers that, but just opening to that sense of um, all that generosity that allowed us to be here. And if you remember what that felt like last night, or what that, I saw a few people smiling when I said that, what that feels like right now when you bring that to mind. What is it like when we just remember that? Or just open to that? What does it do? Does anyone want to say? No pressure. What does it do? How does it feel? And reflect on the generosity of others that is allowing us to be here. There's a softening. Anything else? It does quite immediately make you feel more open. So it immediately makes you feel more open and more loving mm-hmm. with someone else. Yes. Warm. Sense of warmth. Yeah. Yeah. And all of these, yeah, soften, <laughs> open, warm up. Yeah. Do you feel that they all ease our experience? Yeah. And they can all become ways of relating to experience. Yeah. Gratitude, generosity, appreciation. Yeah, he said there's always ways of relating. These are ways of relating that we can intentionally pick up and see how they affect. We're always interested to see how does this affect my experience when I view it through this lens. And that all opportunities to pause and to relax more deeply into what arises. Yeah, if it's openness, if it's warmth, if it's softening we can pause and relax more fully into that and see how that feels. And so for most of us, you know, we can find at least one of these, gratitude, generosity, appreciation, joy, and find at least one of these that is fairly natural and accessible to us. And we can just intentionally bring it in. As I said, you can begin the meditation that way. The Buddha suggested reflecting on our own generosity as a way of calming the mind. It's another way of dealing with um, a lot of agitation and and high energy in the system. Actually reflecting on your own generosity as a way of calming the mind. So they're, they're natural for us and they open a sense of space. They open up the space they generally increase a sense of well-being. And they also dissolve boundaries. 
And we had that with the opening and the softening and the warmth. They tend to dissolve boundaries of self and other. And really importantly, they affect our own well-being, but they also affect the well-being of others. When we're grateful, when we're generous, when we have appreciation, it brims over. We can't contain it. We can't hold on to it. It affects others, whether we're in silence or not. I was just reading the other day, this is a really beautiful thing about generosity. People are more likely to be generous if they witness others being generous. It's kind of infectious. And you hear these stories, I think they're mostly from the U.S., of these paid-forward lines. Have you heard any of these? So on toll booths or um, drive-throughs of fast food places where every person... um, because of the way the system works, they can actually pay for the person behind them, in the car behind them. And then you get to, um, to your turn to pay, and somebody that you've never met, someone you don't know, has paid. And then usually that person pays for the person behind them. I think that the longest one they got to was more than 150 of these. Yeah, I just think that's, that's yeah. Yeah, so it is, it can really be infectious in that way. And we have many examples and possibilities here on retreat for this, yeah, to bring this in. As I said, we can start our meditation practice with um, one of these that speaks to us, yeah, gratitude, generosity, appreciation of what is present right here and now. We can come back to it at moments of difficulty or agitation or, or lack of balance. We can do a lot of it when we're outside. Yeah, it just happens naturally in the natural world. Yeah, with the flowers, um, in the vegetable garden, (laughs) with the incredible giants on the lawn, the real teachers at Guy House are those three trees, if you haven't noticed yet. Um, So, you know, it can happen and, and we can open to that and say, ah, yes, I'm going to make sure that I go and look at these trees or spend time in the walled garden or whatever does that for you, yeah, several times a day. Because yeah. that inclines the mind to joy, to well-being, primes it. So on retreat, many small moments, you know, when we open a door for someone else, yeah, or when you do your yogi job, yeah, chopping vegetables or cleaning toilets as an act of generosity, feeling that sense of community as we do that. Yeah. Feeling appreciation or gratitude when the people in front of you in the lunch queue are serving themselves. Yeah, we can feel that joy for them. Ah. Really shifts that experience of me, me, come on. I want to get there, I want my plate. Yeah, it can really shift with a lot of playfulness. There's so many opportunities. And this has long-term effects. You know, something I can say hand on heart from my own practice really has long-term effects. I mean, just recently I've noticed that whenever something unpleasant happens, my mind immediately finds something to be grateful for. I don't even need to kind of look for it. It just happens. And that's such a great gift. It immediately puts things in perspective. Yeah. Loosens, um, lessens the reactivity. 
opens up possibilities of response that they're not also meaningful for others. There's a lot of, um, of effects over the short term and the long term. So I'd like to finish with a, with a story that illustrates this, but I just want to check what the energy levels are because I've been talking for a long time. Tired? Yeah. Time for silence? Story? Silence. Got a choice. Story. Okay, storytelling. You're not allowed to go to sleep yet. Okay. So this is um, yeah, one of my favorite teaching stories from uh, the leprosy community that Nathan and I um, have been spending time in for the last 15 years in India. And if you've listened to any of my record- to a lot of my recordings, then you may have heard it before, so apologies for that. I love it so much, I tend to tell it quite frequently. Um, so when we're in the, in the leprosy community in, in India, we... Um, do voluntary work there and particularly in what we call the Wisdom Bank uh, the place where the people in the community who are uh, not able to work fully uh, go to live and uh, where they get a little bit more care and this is uh, from one day I was doing an inventory of something, I don't remember what it was so I was walking through all the rooms in the Wisdom Bank and I had my phone because that's what I was using to um, take notes of, of what was miss- of what was there, what was missing. So I had my phone in my hand, which I usually don't have because usually I'm doing massage and my hands are really oily. And as I was walking into one of the bedrooms, one of the elderly gentlemen saw the phone <coughs> in my hand, and his whole being lit up at the phone. You know, and he managed to uh, communicate that he would like to make a phone call and could he use my phone. And I said, of course, and just to to say that most of the people there in the Wisdom Bank um, are separated from their families um, to different degrees. Sometimes there's no contact at all and they've been completely um, ostracized by their families because of the disease. And sometimes, even though they're cured, but sometimes, and sometimes there's still some contact, but um, they mostly come from poor backgrounds, so they don't have the capacity, the, the means to do things like make a phone call or go to visit. So we went out into the courtyard, and he sat down, and he pulled out his little bag of all his precious belongings, a little plastic bag, um, and in it were, was a piece of paper with some phone numbers. And took my phone and I helped him put in the phone number and the first number that he tried was the wrong number and then he tried the second one and someone answered uh, but he couldn't hear uh, the elderly gentleman I was with his hearing was already a little bit affected so he couldn't hear his son um, and so a few other of the um, elderly gentlemen kind of came up and, and they were helping to saying, saying put it on speaker and turn up the volume and all that and finally we managed to get it all working it was on speakerphone um, and away they went with a, with a conversation and I was standing you know stood a, a little bit away even though I don't understand the language 
Um, and I was just watching and feeling this incredible joy. You could hear the joy in the son's voice. You could hear the joy in the father's voice. And just feeling that sense of, um, yeah, incredible joy. I was just like, at being part of it. Yeah, really feeling being part of it. And then I looked up and I took in more of the picture. And I saw that the other um, two gentlemen who had helped this happen, they were sitting not far away. And they had exactly the same expression as me. (laughs) They were also completely joyous. Yeah, completely experiencing the joy of of their roommate in this contact that he had with with his son. Um, And I was really blown away. I was really blown away by that, by our capacity for joy, which is so much more um, profound and unlimited um, than our sense of it often is. Yeah. So in this case, it didn't matter that they didn't have anyone they could call. Yeah. The joy was full and complete in in the joy of another. And here's another part when the call ended and um, I came and took my phone and he put his piece, precious piece of paper back in that little plastic bag he pulled out a note and he wanted to pay me yeah he wanted to pay me for making that call and he had given me much more (laughs) yeah than any any money could do justice to. But that movement of generosity, yeah, that movement of generosity and that movement of joy that we can feel here in the room. This is also what amazes me. Yeah, so joy, generosity, gratitude, all these Qualities, all these attitudes, ways of relating that we can bring in, they dissolve boundaries. They dissolve boundaries of self and other. They dissolve boundaries of time and place. We are feeling now something that happened maybe five years ago in a different country. What does that say? What does that say about our experience? What does that say about the capacity of our hearts for joy, for well-being, and for compassion. So we'll stay with that reflection and just have a, a moment of quiet together to bring this to a close. <coughs> Practice together, nourish well being, 
and a happiness that is not dependent on getting or not getting, not dependent on external conditions. In our own hearts and in the hearts of all beings everywhere. So thank you for your listening and your presence and your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.